uh, in seeking to lead. Uh, you know, if you, if you become a follower of Christ, you find right away that you're called to lead. And we're going to find one of the most important elements of leadership, one that's often overlooked, as a matter of fact, by those who speak about leadership, is right here in front of us, and Jesus gave it to his disciples. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 34. We'll go ahead and read all the way through that half chapter. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Well, this past week, uh, you may have received your U.S. News and World Report on the front of it. America's best leaders, how these unique men and women are changing the world. People like Warren Buffett, Michael Bloomberg, Sandra Day O'Connor, and our own Patrick Lawler. Uh, you know, you don't know how great your friends are until they end up in the U.S. Union World Report. One of the 40 greatest leaders, they say. And, of course, Patrick does such a great job here in this region around the South. Of course, we, we know of uh, his good work. But here you have a description of what truly authentic leadership is. And you have some typical traits here. Uh, they list five of them. Number one, pursuing their purpose with mission. Oh, I'm sorry, with passion. So a leader is a person who pursues his purpose with passion. Secondly, they practice solid values. Thirdly, they lead with their hearts as well as their heads. So you get, you get the affectionate side or the emotional side of a person as well as their intellect. Fourthly, they establish Connected relationships. <clears throat> so world changers are people who know how to connect. And fifthly, they demonstrate self-discipline. Well, all these things are true. But it's interesting to me how one of the most important things uh, that we can discover in leadership is, is really not listed here. And I'd like for us to look at the very beginning of this issue of Jesus calling his disciples. And I want us to notice in these first uh, these first seven verses, that Jesus calls us to engage the conflict of kingdoms. There's a tremendous conflict, and we're going to see the most important thing about leadership is, is that of being called, of coming under authority, of being a follower before you're a leader. And uh, rarely is it mentioned, but in the kingdom of God, to be a world beater and a cultural transformer and a city changer and a person who changes the environment at your work or in your family 
you have to, first of all, be a follower, one who knows that he is called. Jesus calls us to engage the conflict of kingdoms. Now, the reason uh, we say this is that if you look at what's been happening right before this calling takes place, all you have to do is turn back and see that Jesus is being challenged. He's being challenged about the kind of people he hangs out with when he calls Levi back in chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, <coughs> you see that Jesus is challenged about his spiritual disciplines, that, that his disciples don't fast like all the other religious people do. He's challenged about his use of the Sabbath. And they, uh, they really begin to hate him. So Jesus, from the earliest part of his ministry, is beginning to see some tremendous conflict. So what's he going to do about it? Well, Luke tells us in, this par- in a parallel passage to this one in, in Mark 3.13 that Jesus spends all night in prayer. And then what does he do? He calls his disciples next to him. So part of Jesus' strategy in facing the hostility of this dark world against him and his kingdom is to call us guys up next to him. It's a very, very interesting concept when you see it in context. That's the reason the context of the calling is extremely important, that it's a strategic thing. Now, let's notice, first of all, in verse 13, that the calling of Jesus is authoritative. There is no question. (coughs) There's no question here about who's in charge. We are clearly seeing that when Jesus calls, he's in charge. Now, you notice, first of all, that it comes at his initiative. And look at these several descriptions. First of all, we're told Jesus went up on a mountainside. What's the meaning of that? Well, mountains were clearly places of revelation. Look at Mount Sinai. Look at Mount Zion. When important things are happening, when God reveals himself, he chooses a mountain. Why? Just symbolically to help us understand that something high and majestic is taking place here. And you see the same thing in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, He is transfigured where? On a mountain. And he gives his sermon on the the mount. It's an act of revelation. And when he calls his disciples, once again, it's an act of revelation where something very important is being revealed. So he goes up on a mountainside to call his disciples. And if you've been around the Sea of Galilee, you'd realize there are several choices there um, where he could have taken them up. And there's a sense of kind of having a, a look over the entire Sea of Galilee a look over the whole region, kind of a world perspective. And so when he calls them, he takes them up as an act of authority. And then it says he took them up on a mountainside and called to him. Here's a very important word in the scriptures. We've seen this one already when we looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, the issue of calling. <clears throat> if you look at your New Testament, you'll notice that many times we're simply called the called ones. We're the ones who have been called out. God, by his voice, has spoken to us, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to declare his praises. So this issue of calling shows Jesus' authority. Now, you remember that in Jesus' time, a rabbi always was called by a potential student. In other words, the students would come up to the rabbi and ask to be part of his school. Jesus reverses it completely. And the rabbi now goes to the student and tells him he's a student. And that's exactly the way it is in the kingdom of God. If you're interested in Jesus Christ in any way, and you are, you wouldn't have gotten up at 5 o'clock this morning, 5.30, to come here. Uh, whether you, you've decided to follow him or not, you have an interest. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus took some initiative with you. I don't know how it worked in your life. I don't know through whom he worked or whether he just spoke to you in the middle of the night. But somehow Jesus took initiative with you, and that's how you got interested in the first place. And certainly, if you've given your life to him and you're now following him, let me tell you how that happened. Jesus recruited you personally. He called you. Now, notice the next phrase. He called those he wanted. Take your Bibles and keep your finger there in 1606. But turn over to John 15 and you get a very interesting statement by Jesus when he talks about how his disciples got into this thing. He says, verse 15, this is John 15, 15 on page 1735. I no longer call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I've made known to you. Then look at verse 16, at the bottom of the 
page there. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Jesus makes it very clear that, of course, there is a sense in which we chose him. I mean, Matthew chose to follow him, chose to answer him, chose to answer his call. So there is a choice you make. But Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here to make the point. You didn't choose me. I chose you. The ultimate choice comes from Jesus Christ who recruits men to follow him. And you've been recruited. And that's the reason that that you're here. So he called those he wanted. How do we figure out whom he wants? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? We don't really know. But Paul says, if you want to know how Jesus makes a choice, you can notice there aren't too many noble among us, not too many scholars. You know, he didn't choose the high and the mighty. He chose the low. So if you're a follower of Jesus, welcome to the crowd. Uh, that's our description. So I don't know why he did it that way, except that when he chooses the low things of this world to follow him, it just glorifies his grace, his majesty, his kindness, his humble love toward us all the more. So Jesus chose the ones he wanted, including Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus wanted him for reasons that we'll find out later. <clears throat> so in every case here, Jesus is in charge. And then you'll notice that fourth phrase. And they came to him. And here, once again, we've seen that in the first part of, Matthew, uh, of Mark, Mark 1 through 8, Jesus is being displayed for who he is. The wind and waves obey him. The demons obey him. And, but the, we've seen the most important thing that obeys him are his disciples. So the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed when God's the crown of his creation, not the spiritual beings, the angels and demons, not the wind and the waves, nature itself, but the crown of his creation is human beings. And when Jesus calls a human being and they obey, his glory is displayed. And so when you answer the call, that, that is the clearest, most wonderful way in which you can display the glory of Jesus Christ to simply answer his call. Now, I want us to notice that right here, In the very beginning of this text lies, to me, the most important principle of effective leadership. And that is to be a man who is responding to the initiative of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you uh, remember Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person, what's the first habit? Be proactive. Uh, There was a book that came out shortly after that by a man named uh, Callahan who wrote about 12 keys to being an effective leader, something Christian leader. And uh, he's sort of a church growth expert. And he says, the first thing is be missional. That is, do something. Get out front. Be active. Be proactive. So, I mean, it's common knowledge that if you want to be a, a leader, you don't sit back. You, you must step forward and, and actually do something. But, and there's some truth to that. Certainly, I'm all for being proactive. But here's the problem. We are to be proactive vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis human beings. But it begins by being reactive vis-a-vis God. So the only one who can be proactive in an, effect, in an effective way is one who is, first of all, responsive or reactive. So the key to leadership is, first of all, to be responsive to the greatest authority in your life. Uh, we all know what it's like to follow someone who's an oppressive tyrant in their leadership. Their problem is they're not reactive to authority themselves. They don't know how to respond to authority. Therefore, they don't know how to exercise it. If you follow someone who's an authority figure, you want to be sure they're under authority and know how to follow authority. So the first thing is to be a good follower. Truett Cathy, a very successful businessman, said, first key to being a leader is being a good follower. And you see it right here from the text. So what Jesus is showing us in Christian leadership from the very beginning, it starts with humbling ourselves, answering his call, being accountable to him. Now, notice that it's not only his initiative, but it's for his purpose. This authoritative calling has a purpose. And you see this when we're told that he appointed 12. <coughs> now, there's great significance to this number 12. You may not remember how many counties are in Tennessee. I'm not sure I remember. It's either 95 or a little bit more than 95. But everybody remembers how many tribes in Israel there are. I mean, there's no mistake. It'd be like not knowing how many states there are in America. I mean, like the number 50 doesn't mean anything to you. No, the number 12 
was solidly implanted in everybody's mind. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the kingdom of God. 12. 12 tribes. So when Jesus chooses 12, it's a very intentional statement. He's creating the kingdom. He's creating the new Israel. He's leading something that's a massive movement that's going to change the entire world and the universe. He chooses 12. And he has a saving purpose, a transforming purpose in what he's doing. And that's the reason you're called. You're part of the 12. You're part of a movement that is meant to turn the universe inside out. And whether you realize it now or not, and most of the time we don't because we're we're all, each one of us is so small. We live in a certain small part of the universe and we live for just a few years, you know, over this long span of time called history. We don't think of ourselves as being part of a, of a mighty movement that's changing the universe, but you are. And that's exactly what Jesus is, is about. So when you, when you respond to his call, you're coming into a very purposeful movement that is meant to change the world. And then you notice he designated them apostles. In other words, he had a very specific purpose for these 12. They are apostles. In other words, apostle just means one who is sent. And the word apostles is used even in the New Testament for missionaries or people who are sent from one city to another in the Christian mission. We could, we could in one sense, biblically say that our international missionaries or our local missionaries are apostles. They're those who are sent. But obviously there's a narrow and technical sense of the word apostle that is, that is meant here. It's these 12. And what is that narrow definition? Well, there are three qualifications for being an apostle with a capital A. Number one, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. They were those who went and talked about what they saw. As John says, we saw it with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. We heard it with our ears. In other words, their, all their senses, their physical senses were engaged inciting the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. That was the first thing. <coughs> Secondly, they were all personally called by Jesus. They were commissioned by him personally, as these were here and, of course, later on. And thirdly, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and as Hebrews also says, they were those who were given the ability to work signs and wonders, miracles, to validate their apostolic office. So you, you'll see, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, 30 miracles recorded in the scriptures over three years. With the apostles, we have recorded 10 miracles over 30 years. So obviously there's a sort of declining scale there. But nonetheless, you see in the, the apostles' ministries these signs and wonders which validated that they were speaking truly uh, the divine truth that was revealed to them. Now, this is the reason, for example, that the Apostle Paul, who was not in this group, but remember, was converted after the ascension of Jesus. So you say, how, how did he qualify then as an apostle? This is the reason that the Apostle Paul made much of his visual sighting and his hearing of the audible voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that he was a physical witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in an unusual way. And he said, I'm one who came late. And he made much of that too. I'm the least of all the apostles, he said. One of the reasons was, not just that he was an awful sinner, which he was, but that he was the last and he was after the resurrection. He also made much of his personal commissioning by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see he talks much about that. Why? Because it was understood these were the qualifications of an apostle. And Paul knew that he was an apostle, but he had to prove it by his personal commissioning, his personal eyesight of the Lord Jesus Christ and his hearing of his voice. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul worked miracles, didn't he, to confirm his apostolic office. So Jesus is very intentional <coughs> in calling these men, and he is intentional in calling you. What are the qualifications for being a disciple, one who is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ? You must acknowledge your sin and your need of him. If you do not humble yourself and acknowledge that you need everything that he provides. You need his death on the cross. You need the power of his spirit in your life. You need his word that guides you by day by day. You need his forgiveness every day. You need his sovereign lordship over you. You need his church that he gives you. 
You need all of his blessings that he gives you. You need his reaffirmation that he loves you. If you're not ready to admit and acknowledge and experience all of that, you're not qualified. So you begin by qualify, you qualify yourself by admitting your need. And then secondly, you qualify yourself by receiving from him everything that he gives. So you acknowledge that you need it and then you receive it. And with that, you'll get your mission because he sends us into the world to make disciples. And we're now on a mission. So you receive that mission at the same time that you receive his forgiveness on the cross. You also receive his mission to go into the world. Same time. It's the same act of faith. You receive it all. You can't receive half of it. You can't receive his admission if you don't receive his forgiveness. You're going to go out there and tell people about Jesus and you don't even know what forgiveness means for yourself. Forget that. You're not qualified. You're going to receive his forgiveness and then you're not going to listen to his voice on his mission. What makes you think you ever listen to his voice on forgiveness if you don't listen to his his mission statement? You receive him as he is and he is forgiver and he is missioner. So this is what qualifies us. We acknowledge our need and we receive everything that he gives us, including our mission in life. And that makes us his disciples. And then there's no doubt. There's no doubt, dear friends, who's in charge. We're not in charge of this mission. We are reactive people. We are men who listen first. And the way that we see this is in several ways. In, in you're trying to influence other people, including your children. Do you talk to them more about God or do you talk to God more about them? If you believe you're under orders from the Lord, if you believe he's in charge, if you believe he's the one with the authority with a capital A, you talk to him about your children more than you talk to your children about him. And I think most parents get the whole thing reversed because we believe we're in charge and we have taken charge when we're the ones who is doing all the announcing to everybody around us. It's revealed also in the way that we run our business. Have we consulted God? Uh, one, one, one of us who, who had some bankruptcy problems not too long ago said, you know, the thing that I realized after I got into this, I'd never asked him once for help. Isn't that amazing? That's not too hard to imagine, is it? How, how far have you gotten into a really bad problem and you realize, good grief, I've not even asked the Lord to help me. Here's a man who thought he was in charge. And he just runs off, maybe with some pretty good ideas. Maybe he reads Newsweek magazine, finds out how to be the leader, or U.S. News and World Report, finds out how, well, I'll follow those five principles, runs out and does it. Never asks the Lord for help. So an effective leader in the kingdom of God, who's one who's always responding to the bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ, responding to his initiative, and glad to be doing so. Now, secondly, notice about this calling of Jesus that it is personal. He says that they might be with him. So he appointed, uh, he, or rather, he called those he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. You know, if, if I were working from memory from a text like this, I would have said, well, he called them to send them out into all the world to make disciples. And that's not what he said. First thing is they will be with him. It's a very personal leadership style. We're responding out of a relationship that we cherish with the one who is authoritative over us. And you notice the first thing they're called to do is not to go out and to function in the world. They're called first to relate. And all of you type A's need to slow down just a minute and listen to me. Because this is what the text is saying. These guys eventually go around the world. They work cross-culturally. They work very bravely. Every one of them, every single one of them, except for Judas, who hung himself, and except for John, who died of old age, the other men, the ten left plus Paul, all of them died a martyr's death. If you go into our sanctuary and look up toward the ceiling, you'll see the apostles of the, uh, the apostle shields. They all have shields like coat of arms. And all of them, almost all of them, except for John, have instruments of violent death on their coat of arms. They either died by flaying or beheading or dying on crosses, as several of them did. So these are not wimps. These are not men who didn't have some idea of what they're supposed to accomplish. These were not men who suffered greatly from cowardice. These were men who fought the fight, and they knew how to get things done. But the first thing they did was spend time with Jesus. And if you want to know what made them different... 
Even the pagans, well, not the pagans, the Jewish leaders said of them, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. And that's how you tell a disciple who is reactive before he's proactive. A reactive disciple who's reactive toward God, proactive toward men. You can tell he spent time with Jesus. How can you tell? Because he's like him. He starts to bear his marks. He's leading like Jesus leads. He's not leading like the world leads. The world rules it over you. Lords it over you. Jesus comes underneath and serves. And you feel it and sense it. So a person can be very authoritative and a person can be very strong. But when you get close to them, if they're following Jesus, you find they really just want to help you. They're seeking to serve you. That's just one of many traits. You can tell they spent time with Jesus. So the first thing Jesus wants to do with these guys is just be with him. Now, some of this undoubtedly in these days was for Jesus' welfare as well. Because Jesus was being attacked. And he called some guys next to him to be near him. And if he needed men to be near him, guess what you need? You need the same thing. And if you're having relationship problems, then you're going to have leadership problems. So if you want to be effective as a leader, you're going to have to solve the problems that keep men from getting close to you and holding you accountable and encouraging you. Some guys don't know how to receive a compliment. If you don't know how to receive a compliment, you're probably not going to be very good at giving one either. Some men really don't know how to take advice. If you don't know how to take advice, you're not going to know how to give it very well either because you're going to be very selfish and authoritarian in the way you give advice if you don't know how to take it. So we need our friends. Jesus drew men around him to help him in his own ministry. But secondly, and more importantly here, he wants them to be near him because this is the way their leadership is going to be effective. They've got to have time with him. Most of us define ourselves by what we do. Well, Sandy, tell me about yourself. Well... Uh, I'm, I'm a minister at Second Presbyterian Church Memphis. That's great. Good. Uh, what else? Well, uh, you know, um, you used to be a businessman. Well, that's, that's good. That's interesting. Well, where'd you go to college? Well, so, you know what I'm saying. On and on and on. Places we've been, things we did, offices we held. Most people describe their Christian relationship that way. Oh, I got a St. John's Episcopal. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, head of the administrative council up here at uh, Christ Methodist. I'm a deacon at Bellevue. I teach Sunday school, Second Presbyterian. Well, I'm involved in neighborhood Christian center ministry or streets ministries. We define ourselves by what we do. Notice that Jesus does just the opposite. Before he sends them out to preach and have authority over demons, he tells them they are to be related to him. That's their crowning moment, that they're his friends. And this is the key to who you are. You want to know who you are? You're the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that defines and determines everything. And that's the most important thing to know about you, actually. If someone wants to know really who you are, the most important thing, if you know Christ and are following him, that's it. Because that will define everything else about you, regardless of your job and your education, your family and all the rest. So Jesus starts personally because he just wanted them to be with him. This is difficult for men to get. Uh, At 4th Presbyterian in Bethesda, Maryland, the pastor there is a good friend of mine, Rob Norris, and a good friend of many here in our church. Uh, his predecessor, some 25 years ago, was a man named Dick Halverson, who then, after he was pastor of Fourth Presbyterian, became chaplain of the U.S. Senate, uh, preceding, uh, uh, what's his name from California? Anyway, when Dick came to Fourth Presbyterian, this would be now maybe 40 years ago, uh, Dick is a very relational person. And he really believes in discipling men in particular. So the first thing he did when he got to Fourth Presbyterian Bethesda years ago, he just invited some guys out to lunch just to spend time with them. He called one of the guys who was very involved in politics in Washington, and that church happens to have several politicos, uh, at least last time I was up there. And um, he invited one of his political uh, members out to lunch. And... Before the salad was served, this politico said to Dick, Pastor, it's really great to have you here. We're so glad you came to our church. Tell me, what can I do for you? And uh, Dick said, oh, nothing. I just want to have lunch with you. Before the main meal came out, the guy was a little irritated. He said, Dick, uh, I've uh, been in Washington a long time, and uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And uh, listen, we're really glad you're here. And I'm, 
I wanted to come to lunch with you because I wanted to find out how I can help you and what you want me to do to help Fourth Presbyterian Church. And Dick said, honestly, I didn't have any agenda. I just wanted to have lunch with you. Well, by the time the dessert came out, the guy was physically irritated and agitated and was getting angry. And so before he ate the dessert, he said, Dick, now look, let's have it straight. I want to help. I'm glad you're here. And you're frustrating me because you're not telling me the reason we're having this lunch. And Dick said, look, you've got to understand, brother. I'm serious. All I want to do is just be with you. And Dick says that that hardened political person broke down and sobbed at the lunch table. And he said to Dick, no one's ever asked me out to lunch just to be with me. <laughs> and you, you know what? Most of you have not had a lunch like that either. <clears throat> Why don't you have one this week or next? Not waiting for someone to invite you. Why don't you just invite someone just to be with them? And men who take responsibility like you do have a hard time understanding that about Jesus. Before he ever intends to use you to transform the world, he intends to know you and to be your friend and to enjoy your presence. I know you have a hard time with that. If you want to know the truth, I have a hard time believing that too. But he does. He just wants to be with you. When you're having your devotions, reading your Bible and praying with him, would you just realize the most important thing right here is not what I learned from the Bible. The most important thing right here is that I simply enjoy his presence because that's the reason he wants me to read the Bible and pray. It's just to be with me. That's where it starts. That is crucial to Christian leadership. Our leadership, our service, everything that we do just simply flows out of this grateful relationship of having been accepted and loved by someone who is infinitely better than we are, who is gloriously reigning over the entire universe, who has kings and queens and presidents at his fingertip and does with them whatever he wants, off whose fingers the stars fall when they were created. This one who is Lord of the cosmos wants to be with us. Hot chamali. And that is what gets us going in the morning and keeps us going through the day. So, first thing is, he wants to be with us. And then notice, as an aspect of that, that he calls us to be with each other. Now, this is a motley crew. You notice that in the description of them in verses 16 through 19, it begins with Simon Peter and ends with Judas Iscariot. Man, that's some crowd right there. And then notice you have these interesting little combinations. On the one hand, we have Simon the Zealot at the end of verse 18. And you also have Matthew in verse 18. Now, that's an interesting combination. Simon the Zealot. Zealots were those in Jesus' day who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, who were violent, who were kind of the uh, militant fundamentalists. The militant Jewish fundamentalists were the zealots. That's what Simon was. On the other hand, you have Matthew. What had Matthew been doing? Extorting taxes from the Jewish people to fund the Roman military. That makes for an interesting church, don't you think? I think that's a little more radical than having Republicans and Democrats in the same church, I think. You know, one of these guys is likely to take your head off. That's what he used to do. And uh, you used to be the number one criminal. You want you to go to bed at night when you're out sleeping with these guys, wondering if you're going to be alive in the morning, except for Jesus Christ. Because he not only bridges the gap between sin, sinful men and God, he bridges the gap between men and men. And the one place where we must learn to get along to begin with is in the church. And if you've got something going on in your church, first of all, if you're not involved in church, you need to get involved. You say, I don't like those people. Whoever did. Uh, you know, congratulations. You made a great assessment. You know, some, oh, the world has never discovered that. The angels have never noticed that we're a bunch of crumbs. No one's ever noticed that. Oh, you're the first one. Great. Okay. So now you know they're lousy. We'll join them. You know, and if, if you were, if you find the perfect church, as they say, don't join it, you'll ruin it. You know, you're one of the louses. So fellow louse, come on in. So you find these lousy people. Fine. You're one of them. And then you learn to live with them. And then you learn to love them. And then, mystery of mysteries, you learn to die for them. The very people that you held in contempt, the very people you despised, you eventually learn to die for. As you grow more in the likeness of Christ. That's what's going on here. He calls Simon the Zealot and Matthew. You guys come together in an intimate fellowship with me. 
And that's how you're going to have intimate fellowship with each other. It's all in Christ. And that's how you bridge the gap. So this motley crew is brought together. They're held accountable by each other. You'll find later on that Peter and Paul disagree on something. And Paul, the apostle, corrects Peter, the apostle, in Galatians chapter 2. Because they're in such a relationship, they not only will die for each other, but they love each other so much they'll confront each other and risk the relationship in order to spare the friend. So they love the friend more than the friendship. And so real love is the only context where we can actually confront each other and hold each other accountable. You find that in this motley crew. Notice that his calling then, thirdly, is missional. That he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So it's missional, first of all, by proclamation, and secondly, by demonstration. So we are all preachers. We all announce the reign of Christ. This is what it means to be his disciples. We are the people who have been with Jesus. We're people who know him personally. I just talked to him this morning. He's my friend. Let me tell you about him. So when we go out proclaiming, and we're all proclaimers. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you're now his proclaimer. You're simply telling people what you've experienced in Jesus Christ. When he heals the gathering demoniac two chapters later, he just tells him, go to your family and tell them how God has had mercy on you. That's the whole story. Just tell people what Jesus did for you. You're an expert on that. You don't have to give them five points of Calvinism. You don't have to give them the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just tell them what he did for you. That's proclaiming Christ. And you must be able to do that. Have an experience with him such that you know what you're talking about. You're speaking out of personal relationship and out of personal experience. That's a proclamation. And he sends them out to do that. And then he sends them out to demonstrate it. Let me tell you something. Preaching is powerful. You tell people about your own experience, you're going to find demons coming out of the ground. You're going to have to deal with all kinds of demons. It certainly was true here. Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. And as you go out telling people about your experience with Christ, as time goes on, he'll continually give you the authority and power to deal with the evils that you see coming up out of the ground yourself. So it's amazing how he has empowered his disciples to deal with an evil world. The darkness of false, falsehood and lies, he gives us the truth. The darkness of hatred and guilt oppression, he gives us love. And in both cases, with truth and love, we have the weapons we need to transform the world under the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends us out to do it. And then, fourthly, his calling is rewarding. Why is that? <coughs> well, let me tell you why. When I looked at verses 16 and 19 some years ago, first time I ever looked at this text, I looked at the name of these disciples and I thought, how many of these would I remember, would I have known by memory before I read this text? And I figured, you know, I probably would have known about ten of them. But I probably would have forgotten Thaddeus. <laughs> you know, Thaddeus, you know, who's that? Sounds like kind of the fat guy in the end of the boat with big glasses, you know, just sitting there fat. <laughs> Well, I can make fun of Thaddeus, but Thaddeus is making fun of me. He's saying, hey, Wilson, my name's in the book. Where's yours? Uh, <clears throat> and that's the point. When Jesus sends us out and you begin to sense that the world is changing around you because of you, because of Christ working through you, that is a pretty thrilling experience. I, I don't know if you can put your fingers on that one, you know, if, if some clear memories come back to you, but they do to me. When I've had a sense of the world around me changing through the witness that Jesus was giving me by Christ living in me and speaking through me. It's a powerful experience. But here's what Jesus said to his disciples. When he sent them out, the 70 later on gave them a power over uh, an authority over demons. They came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. They had experienced the power of Jesus Christ in their lives and they were flat happy about it. And Jesus said to them, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. However, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There is a joy greater than knowing spiritual power and transforming this world. And the greater joy is just simply knowing your names are written in the book. And I'm telling you guys, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your names are written in the book just as surely as Thaddeus' name is written in this book. There's a book of life, and it's eternal. It's as authoritative as this Bible right in front of you. And your name is in it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you will not be forgotten. By the Lord. But you will be forgotten by everybody else. I know you enjoyed Gordon McDonald last week. Several of you have told me what a really fine presentation that was. If you didn't get a tape, you can get one. I guess it's on the website. But I remember years ago, uh, when I was at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian, Gordon had come to our church to be our missions conference speaker. And uh, 
Gordon and I were there in the, the, what we call the board room. The children called it the boring room in our church. So we were in the boring room. And in the boring room, they had, uh, in those days at that church, all the pictures of the previous pastors lined up. It's kind of like the, you know, the, the, fall, the hall of criminals, you know, all lined up. Some of them, I noticed, had some dart marks uh, on there. So I think they put a bullseye on my picture after I left there. But they had all the pictures up. And so Gordon said, well, Sandy, and I, of course, I recognize uh, George Long, your immediate predecessor. They, you know, George was there and they were friends. He says, who's that? And I said, well, that's Sam Wiley. That's the one that preceded George. He said, who's that? I said, well, that's Dr. Sprunt. Uh, he was right before Sam Wiley. And he said, who's that? Well, I know the guy's name. Either, but it just wouldn't come to me. Uh, I just went blank. I mean, I was even in my late 30s, I was drawing these blanks. You know, it's not just old age, it's just bad brain. And I couldn't remember. And so sitting at the table right there, at the boring table, uh, were two of our older elders. I mean, these guys were 76 and 77, if I remember correctly, at the time. And so I said to the 76-year-old, I said, John, uh, help me remember that guy's name. John said, uh, and he hit Henry, who was a year older, said, Henry, Henry went, uh, and Gordon went, won't be long, Wilson. (laughs) The problem with most guys really is that you're, you're living to have your name live on. And there are several ways you can do this. Uh, you can build a building somewhere, you know, a college would be glad to put your name on it if you become a major donor. Or maybe you can ask the principal to leave up your high school basketball picture or the championship picture for the next 50 years so that your grandchildren can look at it. Or you can try to, in the graveyard, get one of those really big monuments, you know, with your name across it blazoned with some cute little expression that shows us how wonderful you were. I mean, there's several ways in which you can attempt to be remembered. Let me tell you something. They're all fruitless. They're vanity and futile. You're going to be forgotten. Your children will know you. Your grandchildren will know something about you. Your great-grandchildren might remember when they were a little teeny tot what you're like, and then you croak. And later they don't remember much about you except what they get through the book, you know, through their stories from their parents. And then by the time your great-great-grandchildren are here, you're gone, man. You're out of here. And even if your name is up there, nobody much cares. It's useless. And yet men will strive year after year after year to invest themselves in some eternal memory here in this world. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you will be greatly rewarded. You will not be saying when you get to heaven, you know, I wish I'd chosen to follow some other God. Gosh, I made a bad investment there. No, you will be absolutely in wonder and amazement that God gave you the sense to give up your life and give it to him. You'll be amazed that someone as foolish as yourself had sense enough to do that. And you'll find that it was only the Lord who gave you the sense to do it. And you'll find you made the best investment you could ever have made infinitely beyond any other investment you ever made in your life. Well, let's move on to these next verses. And you'll find that Jesus calls us to engage the conflict of kingdoms because the conflict of kingdoms is fierce and it's personal. And first of all, in this text, we saw that Christ's followers quickly arouse detractors. They arouse detractors from their own family members who sometimes think they're crazy. You ever had family members do that? They think you're crazy. He's out of his mind. And secondly, intelligent, learned, religious people sometimes think we're demonic. (coughs) And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So his dear mother and brothers came to rescue him because they thought he was emotionally in trouble. They thought he was kind of out of his mind. There had been too much late. He hadn't got enough sleep. People were following him and driving him crazy. It had so much popularity. They actually thrown him out of, out of balance. Maybe he had a chemical problem of some sort. They didn't know what it was, but Jesus was acting weird. They had known him for 30 years and he hadn't been acting this way. And now he's different. They think he's crazy. Anybody ever had people think you're a little crazy? I've had a lot of you tell me, you know, my parents think I'm nuts. Or my siblings think I've just lost it because I'm following Jesus Christ. You know what? That's what happens often. And if you think you're alone, forget it. Jesus was the first one whose family thought he was a little nutty. And how difficult this must have been for Jesus. Now, obviously, 
This is no slight against Mary or Joseph. Joseph seems to have been dead by now. It's no slight against his brothers. You know, the other people here didn't know Jesus for 30 years and see the dramatic change. And these people had a deep concern for Jesus. So I don't mean to be slighting them in any way, but even someone as virtuous as Mary and someone who, like James, the brother of Jesus, who who wrote the epistle, James, who was obviously very smart and able person, they were confused. And they even thought Jesus had gone out of his mind, at least temporarily. And then the learned and the religious people thought the same. If you saw the New York Times book review uh, this past week, a Sunday paper, you notice that of the 10 top hardback nonfiction books, two of them are slams against Christianity. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And a couple of other books are reviewed in the, in the magazine. They were slams against Christianity. You know, people are saying now how our country really wasn't founded by Christians. There's a very popular book to that respect. Richard Dawkins at Oxford University has written a new book about, uh, you know, the silliness of believing in God and so on and the improbability of it and so on. And so these things are just constantly put before us. We're reminded that what we believe in in the eyes of the world is often seen as very silly. But now notice that Jesus has a response. Christ followers discover the kingdom of God in our conflict. First of all, Jesus is saying those who demonize Christ are blaspheming God. Now, Jesus does three things in this text. He first of all, if you'll notice in verses 23 through 26, he refutes them. And he explains how what they're saying is impossible. If this if I'm doing this by Beelzebub, Beelzebub is destroying his own kingdom because I'm releasing people from the kingdom of Beelzebub by delivering them from demons. So what are you talking about? You know, Satan may be evil, but he's not stupid. Uh, So Jesus refutes what they're saying uh, in verses 23 through 26. Secondly, in verse 27, notice he gives them the real interpretation. He says, "Okay, that can't be the case. What you're saying can't be the case. But in fact, verse 27, what is happening is that I'm entering the strong man's house. And the only way I can take from him what he had under his authority is if I bind him up. And so Jesus is basically saying, I've got him all bottled up. And that's the reason I'm able to, to ransack his kingdom, because I've tied him up. So that's the reason we say that you know, when we study the Revelation, we say that we're in a period when Jesus has tied up the strong man. Now he's on a long chain, you know, so he can do damage. But Jesus has him completely under control. You may be confused about that. The devil is not. And that's what's made him very angry. He knows he's under the, the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, you want to know what's really going on here? is that I have the devil under my control. Wow. And then thirdly, he gives a solemn warning in verses 28 and 29, this famous text about the unforgivable sin. And he says, you know, you can say things against the Son of Man, but when you speak against the Holy Spirit, this is a sin that will never be forgiven. Now, of course, ever since then, we've been wondering, gosh, did I do that? Let me think. You know, over 55 years of life, I surely did something that was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Could I have committed the unpardonable? Well, let me say, if you read that little article on the bottom left side of the page, which you ought to do, you'll find that that article mentions something very important to remember. If you're concerned about having committed the the unpardonable, then you haven't committed it. Because the unpardonable sin is a settled, careless, assigning to the power of Jesus the power of the devil. And if you're not indifferent about it, you couldn't have committed it. Because the one who commits the unpardonable sin is one like the Pharisees who are not uneducated people and not unbiased people. But they look straight at the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and in their minds, in their consciences, they know it's the power of the Spirit and they assign it to the power of the devil and they don't give a damn. So if you are concerned about having committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed it. You don't fit the description. But notice here, there's another thing that uh, is not anywhere in our notes here. But the rabbis had a statement during the times of Jesus that if one blasphemes against God, that sin would be unpardonable. What Jesus is really doing, he's taking the Pharisees' own library of oral tradition. And he's saying, you've got this tradition about blaspheming God. Let me tell you what you just did. You just blasphemed God. 
So there's real irony in what he's saying. He's turning the sword of the Pharisees back upon themselves. So that's, I think, really what's going on here. It's, a, it's an ironical statement. Now, lastly, notice that those who follow Christ become our family. And this is an amazing statement. You think about how much Mary loved her own son. All you have to do is turn to Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, you can look at the end of the gospel accounts, especially in John, and see how Mary, even when the other disciples fled, she was at the cross weeping for her son. Mary treasured up things in her heart about her son that Luke went back and interviewed her on later. Mary was the one who poetically gave her, her life to the Lord that the Son of God may be conceived in her womb. Here's a, a woman who treasured her child. And when Jesus is asked about his family, it looks like he turns on his mother, but he doesn't really because Mary's both in his temporal family and his eternal family through faith in, in Christ. But he makes this statement that my real mother, my real brothers and my real sisters, my real family are those who are following me, those who are doing the will of God the Father. That is an amazing statement. You think of these deep motherly bonds between Jesus and Mary, and he's saying, those are the bonds I have with you. That's remarkable. So what Jesus is saying in the midst of what's coming at him is that really it doesn't matter what the world says. All they do is get themselves in trouble. And it doesn't matter what my family even thinks of me, either temporarily or permanently, because my real family are the disciples. And my dear friends, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're family, you're a real brother, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the calling to be a disciple. Thank you for the calling from Christ to be with him and to carry out his mission and to wait the day when the name that is written in heaven, our own very names, will be revealed and we will be welcomed into the family just as much as Mary and James and others love their family member Jesus. Oh God, help us to remember that today that we may lead with joy and with the power of the Holy Spirit and with the prospects for doing much good even today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.